0: Well, good morning again, everyone. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it to Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18, and that's on page 927 in the church Bibles, Acts 18. We're looking today at the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey. Corinth was the last stop on the route, as it were, and after spending a great deal of time in Corinth, uh, Paul heads back to his home base in Antioch for a time of rest and recuperation. And of course... Corinth kind of feels like home church, doesn't it? Of, of all the places that, that Paul visits, of all the, the cities that the Bible talks about, we feel like we know the most about Corinth, don't we? And, uh, and of course, partly that's because Paul spent 18 months there, which was a long time. I mean, he spent a couple of weeks in some places. But then also, it's just because they were galactically dysfunctional. Amen? Praise God. Because uh, good churches didn't get any letters. Uh, but, but galactically dysfunctional churches, uh, they, they got letters. The Corinthians led the league in uh, bad behavior, wrong ideas, and rotten attitudes. So uh, we had lots of content. Now, to be fair to the Corinthians, uh, they had some challenges. They were easily the least refined and uh, least prepared people that the Apostle Paul worked with. Uh, The church in Corinth did not have a very deep Jewish foundation. And a lot of churches, you know, it's kind of like 60% Jewish and then a sprinkling of Gentiles. You know, a sprinkling of Gentiles. I don't know if that's the correct term. But anyway, uh, there there was a pretty substantial Jewish base. That was not the case in Corinth uh, because as we're going to see in the story we're about to read, Paul got kicked out of the synagogue uh, very early on in his missionary efforts there. And so the church was largely Gentile, meaning they did not have that same base of Bible knowledge, Bible background that Paul could draw upon in, in other places. And that's a, that's a, a game changer. Our, uh, our CM folks were just at the big CM conference down in Nashville, and, uh, and so my wife got back with, with the team, and, and I was asking, you know, what'd you learn, blah, 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 and what'd um, you bring me, and where's my hot sauce, right? Typical things you ask when someone's been to Nashville. And, uh, and she said, one, you know, one of the interesting sessions was about their changing their whole philosophy of how to do children's ministry in terms of how to teach, because all the, all the new information indicates that the kids coming into children's ministries today have absolutely zero Bible background. So you can't be like, all right, we're going to talk about Jonah and how Jonah is typologically anticipatory of Christ in the tomb. And they're like, candy. Now, right, like no concept of who who you're talking about there's zero Bible background to draw upon, and that creates a, a whole a whole different challenge for how you do children 's ministry. Well, it also creates whole new challenges for how you do church planning you know it's hard to write a sermon for people who know nothing uh, because most things in the Bible build on other things and and so that was a real a real challenge in corinth, and then of course, they were morally corrupt as well to a to a remarkable extent. Uh, The city of Corinth was uh, known, was famous for immorality, even within the generally corrupt Roman Empire. In fact, there were so many prostitutes on the streets in Corinth that the word Corinthiastes actually became a synonym for the word prostitute in the Roman Empire. That would be like if the drug problem in Aurelia got so out of control that all throughout North America, it became common to refer to a drug addict as an Aureliaite. We're not, uh, you know, uh, we might get there if, if the grace of God does not intervene, but the Corinthians were there. They were famously immoral people with fabulously little Bible background. And so, of course, we're not terribly surprised that they had some trouble getting started in their Christian faith. And so Paul spends some time with them. He really leans in, he's stuck with them, and he wrote them four letters. Now, that may be a bit of a surprise to you if you're a Bible reader. You might know that we have two letters in our Bible. We have First and Second Corinthians. But actually, Paul wrote four letters. And we know that because he refers to these other letters in the letters that we have. So in the letter that is in your Bible called First Corinthians, Paul refers to a previous letter. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter. So one of the reasons Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians, is because they had misunderstood his previous letter. So obviously 1 Corinthians is not actually 1 Corinthians, it's actually 2 Corinthians. And then the book we call 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians, and we know that because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul makes reference to a letter that he calls or refers to as the severe letter, a severe letter, he says, that he sent them, that was after 1 Corinthians but before 2 Corinthians. So if you add that all up, We've got four letters. So we have lots of content to draw from today as we consider his ministry in that city. We're going to read the whole summary that Luke provides uh, of Paul's 18-month stay. And then we're going to zoom in on the vision that he has from Jesus, where Jesus tells him to stay a little longer. And we're going to have a conversation about the power, role, and effect of Bible preaching and teaching in the life and ministry of the church so hear now the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Just a quick pause there. I think I mentioned last week, Paul was in Athens for maybe two weeks. He's going to be in Corinth for 18 months. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as I mentioned, I want to use the vision in verses 9 to 10 as a sort of lens through which to consider the story and the Corinthian correspondence as a whole. As I mentioned, Paul got off to a very rocky start in Corinth. Uh, The Jews in that city were offended by his preaching, and they kicked him out of the synagogue, which happened a lot. It didn't always happen that soon on in the process, but it happened a lot. But this time what is interesting is that Paul starts planting a church in the house next door. And he takes the pastor, the former leader of the synagogue with him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine, you know, like a guest preacher of some, you know, let's let's from our perspective say some kind of Christian cult comes in. We mistakenly give him the pulpit one Sunday, and he leaves and I go with him, and so does Elrond and three other elders, and we start a church in the cemetery 100 meters from here. That's exactly what's, what's going on. And so obviously the Jewish community is in uproar. Obviously the whole city is in uproar. This is a pretty big deal. And so accusations are flying. The temperature is rising. Threats are being made. And, and so Paul thinks maybe it's time to go and we know that he would kind of make judgment calls as to how long to stay. And typically, you know, once people are sharpening their swords and lighting their torches and warming up the pitch and getting the feathers out of the pillow, right? That's when Paul decided, okay, I'm going to go to the next city, right? These people have heard, they've made their choice, off I go. But he has a vision. And Jesus comes to him and says, no, I don't want you to go. I want you to stay. I don't want you to be silent. I want you to keep preaching. For I have many in this city who are my people. Isn't that just about one of the most interesting verses in the entire Bible? What does that even mean? For I have many in this city who are my people. And of course, Paul's wondering, well, then why is everybody here trying to kill me? Right? If you've got so many people in this city, why did I get kicked out of the synagogue? Why is there a riot here in town? Why isn't anyone standing up for me? If you've got so many people, Lord, where are they? And the answer is they haven't been called out yet. They haven't been awakened and gathered by the Word of God. And that's what I want to focus on this morning, because the Word of God does it all in this story. You've probably heard the great line, the famous quote from Martin Luther, uh, about the Word of God doing it all during the Protestant Reformation. So Luther says this, Take me, for example, I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word, otherwise I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Now, I'm not sure you want to put that on your pastoral resume, right? I preach the Bible and drink beer. That's me in a nutshell. Call me if you'd like an interview. (laughs) But Luther's point is that the Word of God is the power and force of all Reformation and revival. That was true in 16th century Europe. That was true in 1st century Rome. And of course, that's true again in our day. It's true in every day and every age. In this story, we see the Word of God doing three very important things. We see, first of all, the, that the Word of God saves. Look at verse 8. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, in the Greek, those verbs are in the imperfect tense, meaning they have a continuous sense of about them, so Luke is saying that this is this was ongoing. It didn't just happen on one day. It was ongoing. People were hearing, they were sitting under the word of God, they were coming to the point of faith, and they were being baptized into the family of God. Praise the Lord. Which is similar to the story that we just heard. Uh, you heard a little bit of, of Sawyer's testimony there in the baptismal tank. Uh, I. I was one of those preachers. He mentioned that he was going around to different churches and hearing the word of God, speaking to, to pastors afterwards. It was very, very interesting to just watch the word of God working on his heart and on his mind. It was a privilege to be a part of that. We had you know, met at Tim Hortons, talked through things, and then pretty much every Sunday, I was just saying this uh, to your parents, pretty much every Sunday you came up with an excellent question indicating that you had been wrestling with the word that you had heard. And then today we had the privilege of watching this young man profess faith in the waters of baptism. That's, that's how it works. The word of God is a saving word. Now you might say, wait, wait a second, Pastor. I'm, I'm not sure I like that phraseology. Only Jesus saves. And of course, I, I want to agree with that. The, the, the word of God, the Bible did not you know, die on the cross and, and rise again from the dead on the third day for your salvation. Okay? The word of God in the flesh did that. Jesus did that. But the only access you have to that, the only way that you can hear about that is through the Word of God. Through the Word of God read, through the Word of God heard, through the Word of God preached. According to the Bible itself, hearing the Word is necessary for salvation. The Apostle Paul says that in Romans 10, 17. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. People have to hear the Word of God in order to be saved. Now that phrase there, the word of Christ, is a shorthand way of saying people have to hear Bible preaching in such a way that it lands on Christ. Uh, people aren't going to get saved if you just, you know, you tell the story of, you know, I, I made reference to Jonah and the whale or Daniel in the lion's den. If if you just read those stories as little moral vignettes, that's not going to save anybody. But if if you read and teach those stories in terms of how they lead us, how they prepare us, how they illustrate in advance the person and work of Christ. And people can get saved through that. And so that's what we mean when we talk about the word of Christ. We're talking about Bible preaching that lands on Jesus. People have to hear that. They have to fight to hear that. When the Christ of Scripture is presented to them through the preaching and teaching of the Bible, that creates the conditions in which people can manifest faith and be saved. Now, this isn't something that the Apostle Paul invented. This wasn't his idea. This goes all the way back to Jesus. In fact, the words that Jesus uses in the vision that he has, that is recorded here with the Apostle Paul, reference something that goes back to John 10. So let me repeat what Jesus said in the vision, so that you can spot the reference. In the vision here in verses 9 to 10, he says this. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. All right, so he says, so, so don't leave, and don't go silent. Keep preaching, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, compare that to what Jesus says to his disciples in John ten sixteen. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. I remember, and I'm thankful that I can't remember who said this because I wouldn't want to embarrass anybody, but I, I remember as a, as a boy of about 12, hearing somebody teaching on that passage, and they thought that, that what Jesus was saying is that there might be people on other planets uh, who, who need to be saved. And I thought, well, that is the most unusual take on that passage I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> bless your heart. <laughs> of course, what Jesus is saying here is that the flock that he's gathering is much bigger than the Jewish people. The disciples assumed that they were being sent out to gather a remnant from within Judaism, and Jesus is saying, yes, yes, but understand this. I have others. I have many others that I'm going to call out and add to this flock as well, and, and so that's what we're seeing here what, what Jesus is saying here is that some of these many more people that are mine are residents of Corinth, and they need to hear my voice and come out. That's what he's saying. It's important for us to understand that connection every time we open our mouths and teach the Bible such that it lands on the person and work of Jesus Christ, every time we tell the gospel story from the pages of Scripture, it projects the voice and call of Jesus. That's like a dog whistle. When people hear it, their ears perk up, they begin to stir and awaken and come forth, And they begin to gather around the Savior. That's what Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So Jesus says, I'm like a shepherd. And and he says, I go into the community sheep pen. Right? Back in those days, all the families in a village would store their sheep overnight in the one common pen. And then usually the, you know, their oldest son uh, would go into the pen in the morning and he would have a distinctive whistle and the sheep would perk up because they know that whistle. They know that's the boy who takes them to the water. And, and so they would line up, as it were, and he would lead them right out to pasture. And Jesus says, that's, that's who I am. My voice wakens dead people to life. My voice causes my people to perk up, to get in line, and to follow. That's, and they hear that voice inside the preached word of God. That's what preaching does. That's what Bible teaching does. That's what you reading the Bible with a friend does. It projects the voice and call of Jesus. And when that happens, all over the herd, and masses of sheep, ears are going to perk up, Folks are going to stand up and get in line and begin to follow you outwards and, on, and onwards towards Jesus. And often, as we've just seen, directly through the waters of baptism. And that's why the, the reading, the preaching, the hearing of God's word is central to everything we do in church. When, when we do VBS, of course we get the bouncy tent. Of course we get the snow cone machine. Of course we get the craft lady and the reptile guy. And of course we go on trips. Of course, of course, of course. But we do all that to gather 200 kids into a room so that they can sit under the word of God. And we, of course it's the same thing in men's ministry. It's actually even more obvious in men's ministry, right? In men's ministry, you know, you fire up the grill and you put smelly stuff on there. And the guys all, all gather around, right? And uh, we're going to have ribs. Ribs? And, and then you get wings, right? And then you throw an axe at something or someone, right? It's not rocket science. But we, we do all of that to gather 100 men into a room so that we can speak the word of God over them. With, with the hopes that as, as the word of God washes over those people, s- some ears are going to perk up. Some hearts are going to be strangely warmed, right? Some tombs are going to open some dead people are going to come forth and be raised to life. Praise the Lord. All right. so as wonderful as that is though, it kind of raises a question because it sounds like Jesus already knew who these people were. He doesn't say, you know what, go ahead and keep preaching in Corinth. I feel like there might be some folks there. I feel like if you just keep preaching, maybe we'll see like more people come. No, he's like, I got people. I know who they are. They haven't popped yet. So keep preaching. That's Interesting. And it's not the first time we've heard something like that in Acts. Acts thirteen forty eight says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Do you stumble over that sentence? Every, you know, you read, well, if you're doing the RMM, you read through the book of Acts twice a year. Is it possible? It doesn't matter how many times you've read the book of Acts. Is it possible to read that verse and not stumble over it? Like, what does that mean? Again, raises the question: How does one get to be appointed to eternal life? How how does one get to be the sort of person who can hear the dog whistle, whose, whose ears can pick that up, such that you are awakened, such that you stand and follow? How, how does that work? Now, I confess freely that I don't know as much about that as I'd like to know. There's some mystery here in the Bible. Of course, we can only know for sure what the Bible tells us, and the Bible doesn't always tell us everything we want to know. I remember hearing one time, I think probably in youth group, that the Bible is not the big book of answers to questions children ask, probably because I had more questions than was good for me or than was pleasing uh, to my teachers. What about this? What about that? What about this? Right? I don't even know what that means. I think it means be quiet in some other language. But the Bible is not the big book of answers to to questions that people ask. And so all we can know for sure is what the Bible tells us. Here's some of what the Bible says. The Bible says that no human being after the fall is actually inclined to listen to the word of the Lord. In Romans 1, 18, Paul says that human beings in their natural fallen state suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Isn't that interesting? So the Bible says we don't hear because we don't want to hear. We, we stick our fingers in our, in our ears because we know that if we hear, then we're going to be accountable for what we've heard. And so we stick our fingers in. And we've been sticking our fingers in our ear for so long that we've actually permanently plugged that hole. So now we can't hear. But as this story makes clear, some people are hearing. Some people do hear. And they come forth and are saved. The whistle is blown, their ears perk up, and they follow the master. So that's the point of the story. But how did these people get there? And the answer is by the grace and mercy of God. Old Testament and new, that fact is acknowledged. David in Psalm 40 says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Do you hear that? So David says, David, you know, comes to the place in a spiritual life when he realizes, God doesn't need my money or my stuff. He's not up in heaven hungry going, where's my sheep? Right? I mean, it's two o'clock, it's way past lunch. Where, where's my sheep? And David says, I figured out that that's not what you want from me. What you want from me is a listening ear, so you gave it to me. Isn't that interesting? God gives that which he wants to receive. Isn't that interesting? God makes that which he delights in. So David says, I figured out what you want. You want me to be the sort of person who will hear your word and respond appropriately, and so you made me that type of person. You gave me an open ear. Isn't that interesting? That's grace. It's the exact same thing in the New Testament. Think of Peter. When when Peter makes this big declaration in Matthew 16, being the first of the disciples to figure out that Jesus was the Christ, the Lord said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you hear that? Blessed are you, Peter, not smartest one of the disciples are you. Blessed are you. To be blessed is to have been given. Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Jesus says to Peter, the the fact that you've heard the dog whistle, the fact that you've stood up and begun to stir, the fact that you're following me, all of that indicates that you have received grace. God's given you an open ear. So, Old Testament and New Testament, grace comes first. Now, I know that for whatever reason, some evangelicals don't like that. Uh, and I, I, I'm not saying you have to buy into an entire system. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying I'm not sure how you read the Bible, Old Testament or New and come to the conclusion that Christianity is just kind of like a, a, a complicated test that only really smart and attentive Bible readers can figure out. And, and, and so the fact that you get it as opposed to the person next to you, it just indicates you're smarter and better and more wonderful. And if that were the case, we should all really be worshiping you. Hard to know how you can read the Bible and not come to the conclusion that the fact that I'm here today, the fact that I'm buying this, the fact that I'm hearing this and not getting resentful means that God went first. He, he did something in my heart. He softened my heart. He opened my eyes. He dug ears for me. His grace goes first. That's why the Apostle Paul is always saying, wherefore is boasting? What, what are you going to boast about? Are you smarter than anybody? Did you work harder at this than anybody? Do you not know that God went first? So if you want to boast, if you want to tell a story, tell a story about him. Tell a story about how he got you to this place, right? Grace comes first. According to the Bible, God has to go through the sheepfold first before the shepherd boy gets there with his whistle. God's got to go through. You know, remember in the Old Testament, the angel of death, like, kind of goes through the, 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 the population there and looks for the blood over the door. And you, you kind of have this vision of that, that happening. It's kind of, like, kind of like that in reverse, as a presence of grace. God, God goes through the sheepfold, and he's got to go first. He's got to do some stuff. He's got to open some ears. He's got to pull out some clogs. He's got to dig, dig some holes. And, and then, when the shepherd boy comes and blows his little whistle, right, when the word of God is preached, some people are going to hear, and those people are going to come forth. But again, again raises the question. How do you get to be one of those people? And like I said, I don't know as much about that as I would like. I, I know what it's not. The Bible's very clear about what is, what is not a factor. There's a whole chapter about that. In Romans 9, Paul says that it has nothing to do with race. So you don't, he, now, he's saying that because he wants people to understand you don't have to be Jewish to get this. So it's got nothing, nothing to do with race. It says it's got nothing to do with social standing. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be the firstborn. You don't have to be a fancy person. It's got nothing to do with race. Nothing to do with social standing. Nothing to do with righteousness, or sorry, with um, wealth. And then it's got nothing to do with righteousness. He says because he says, remember, remember, uh, when God was choosing be- between uh, Jacob and Esau, He chose them before they'd done anything. He chose them in the womb. So it's got nothing to do with that either. It's none of those things. So Paul tells us what it isn't but then he doesn't tell us what it is. He just says that there is no injustice on God's part, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So we can't know. We don't know. We just know that it begins with the mercy and compassion of God. But we also know that human beings are responsible for how they hear. After all, you are the person who has been sticking his fingers or her fingers into her ear for so long that you ruptured your eardrums. That's on you. Human beings are morally responsible, the Bible says. But they need help and mercy from God in order to hear. Those those things are clearly taught in the Bible. And so what that says to me is that If you're here today and you've never heard the voice and call of Jesus, but you would like to, then you ought to pray for God to have mercy on your soul and for him to do a miracle in your ear. I think we've got these big truths, right? Like the Bible says, you are responsible. The Bible doesn't say that you can't hear. It says that you won't hear because of your own unrighteousness you don't want to hear because then you'd be responsible so the Bible says you're responsible for not wanting to hear and then the Bible over here says you need help from God to hear and you're like how does that go together it's never explained exactly how it goes together but the correct response to those realities I think is pretty clear it's a call for humility and prayer isn't it oh God I want to but I can't, will you help me? And, and, and so I, I would just say, listen, feel free to check out of the sermon right now and just spend some time praying that prayer. Like, if that's what you realize, if you're like, that's what I need to do, then do it. Take a break right now and pray that prayer. God, I want to hear the voice of Jesus inside the words of this very human preacher today. I want to hear, I want to hear Jesus help me. Open my ears, soften my heart to receive. That's a great prayer. Do that. And who knows, you might find the rest of this sermon miraculously interesting. All right, so the Word of God saves. Praise the Lord. But what if you're already saved? Here's a good question. What about all the Corinthians who heard the Word and were converted early on? Why did they need Paul to stay there and keep preaching to them and sending them letters? Why did they need more Bible preaching and teaching? And the answer is because the Word of God sanctifies. Now, we'll move quicker here. The first point is the main point, but there are two other things I want you to see. When we read the Bible, we see that the Word of God saves, and we see that the Word of God sanctifies. Sanctifies is a big word that means to change in the direction of Jesus, to get holier, to grow out of your sin. Now, of course, this idea, too, that the Word of God sanctifies goes back to Jesus. Jesus, in his prayer for all those in the future who would believe in him, by the way, Did you know that there's a prayer in the Bible for you, about you? Jesus in John 17, it's it's sometimes given the heading, uh, Jesus High Priestly Prayer. Jesus takes a minute to pray for all those in the future who will believe in him. So that's pretty cool. John 17, Jesus is praying for you. And he says something very interesting. He says to the Father, sanctify them. So he's talking about you. Sanctify these future believers in the truth. Your word is is truth. So when the word of God washes over a room like this, two things are happening simultaneously. First of all, some people are hearing the word of God. They're hearing the voice of Jesus inside the word of God for the first time. And so like Lazarus, you know, they're coming forth out of the tomb and they're all, it's dark and they're not seeing very well and they're still tangled up in a bunch of stuff. Every newly converted person is tangled up in a bunch of stuff, amen? Right. And so we've got to give them some time. We've got to help them out. So some people are doing that. But then other people who maybe came to the Lord, were drawn to the Lord years ago, maybe decades ago, they're hearing the Word of God, and they are being changed. Paul says that. He says that to these folks, to these Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I think you know that's one of my favorite passages. Uh, it's an incredible passage, and it's one worth studying. I was studying it again earlier this week or a couple weeks ago for the Second Corinthians podcast series that we released through Into the Word. I stumbled upon this quote from Mark Seifert. I love it. This is what he says about that passage. He says, "...the Lord wills to speak with us face to face, as He did with Moses." It is this relationship of communication and giving, in which the gift is the giver himself, that constitutes our salvation. Isn't that good? So, in 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul's working this comparison. He said, You know, when, when you become a Christian, it's kind of like when Moses went into the tent of meeting in the Old Testament. Do you remember that story? Moses goes into the tent of meeting, and he would go in there, and God would speak to him. And he would then write everything down, and it became. That's how you got your, your, you know, your first five books of the Bible, right? Uh, that's how you, you got the Law of Moses. Moses didn't just make that up. He had conversations with God, and then when he would come out of the Tent of Meeting, because he had spent time with God face to face, his face was changed. He was glowing, and it it alarmed the Israelites. And so Moses put a veil over his face. And, you know, like one of those Frisbees that you put under a light, and it gets all bright and at night, and it glows. And, but then after a couple of hours, it fades. And so Moses, you know, kind of, we would come out of the tent glowing, 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 and then the, the glory would fade a little bit. By the way, kind of sounds like the rhythms of a Christian week, doesn't it? Right? You come into the house of the Lord, you're glowing, 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 and then by Tuesday, you're chucking hammers at people, right? I mean, that's not what exactly what happened with Moses, but Paul's making that comparison you know, he's saying, we, we have this incredible experience now. And he uses this really interesting word. He says, when we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord as though in a mirror. Some of your Bibles, probably about half the Bibles in this room will have the phrase, as though in a mirror. Because that's actually what the Greek word means. It, it means reflected as though in a mirror. So we're not, Paul's saying, it's, it's not as though when you close your eyes, Jesus, boom, like physically manifests in front of you. He's not saying that. It's like, a, it's like looking at it in a mirror. Meaning, you're, you're seeing Jesus. As, as you encounter him in the word. And Paul talks about this all, all, like that all the time, like in Galatians. In Galatians 3, he says to the people there, he says, Christ was crucified before your eyes. And you think, wait a second, no, he wasn't. He's was crucified in Jerusalem. They weren't there. No, 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 but, but like I preached Christ crucified to you. You met him there in the preaching of the word. And you can have that experience as a believer every time you sit under the word. He says it's like Moses going into the tent. You have an experience there. You have an encounter. You have a meeting that changes you by one degree of glory to the next. That's why Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this conversation that we have with Jesus is a deep and penetrating conversation. In it, he shows us things that need to change, and he gives us the power to make those changes. And all of that happens inside the word of God preached. When the word of God washes over you and the spirit of God speaks within you, right? Paul closes that passage in 2 Corinthians 3.18 by saying, this comes from the Lord who is the spirit, right? So you have this meeting facilitated by the spirit, where you encounter Jesus and you're changed. Do you know that dynamic? And I'll tell you, because I believe in this dynamic, I'll tell you two things about me that come out of this passage. Like I said before, you know this is, you know, I don't know if I believe in life verses, but whatever. This, this verse comes pretty close to being whatever a life verse is. It has shaped my approach to ministry. Here are two things I believe. Number one, I believe that if my sermon has lots of Bible verses in it, there's no way that it can stink. Now, you might disagree. You might say, Pastor, I have evidence to the contrary. No, but actually, I, you might not have found it funny. You might not have found it engaging. You might not have found it relevant. But if there is Bible in it and you're a believer then something happened. So I, I believe that, number one. So that's why I make sure all my sermons have Bible stuff. Because I, I have no funny stories that are guaranteed to change your life. I have no stories about my mom that are guaranteed to change your life. I have a couple stories that probably will change your life. But no stories that, that will for sure change your life. But the scriptures will if you're, if you're a real believer. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I don't worry about, I am not concerned whether or not you can repeat and regurgitate my sermon outline in the car on the way home. Right? Like sometimes there's a lot of effort put into that. Like, all right, poke the person next to you and say, the Word of God saves. Now poke the person on the other side and say, the Word of God sanctifies. Now everybody together, the Word of God saves. The Word of God, sa-. like I don't care about that. All I know is that if, if I preach the Word of God over you and you're truly saved and you've got the Spirit of God working inside of you, then that facilitates a potential encounter with the person and voice of Jesus. And so if you want to stop at any point in the sermon and, and engage that conversation, like if the Lord knocks on your heart in point one, feel free to disengage from me and carry on that conversation. Lord, you're poking on me about point one. What, what is it you'd like to say? Well, got, you've got to apply this when you get home with your wife. Okay, let's unpack. Feel free. You can jump back in at point four. And you say, well, why don't you just stop preaching then at point one? Well, because the, the Holy Spirit was knocking on the person next to his door during part, you know, point three. I believe that. That's what matters. What matters is facilitating an encounter with the person and word of Jesus, not whether you can regurgitate all the points. What matters is did you meet Jesus? Did you have an appointment today with Jesus in the preaching and hearing of the word? If you did, then you will be changed by one degree of glory to the next. Thanks be to God. Now I want you to see one more. The word of God saves us, and the word of God sanctifies us. Now you're trying hard not to remember that because I just told you that's not the point. Here's your third point. The word of God separates us. That's part of the story too. Look at verses five to six. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, shaking out your garment was a symbolic way of saying, you are no longer part of the family of God. Do you remember in the Old Testament, some of the prophets would put little pieces of hair here and everywhere, right? And, and, and sometimes uh, you get the expression, shaking the dust off your feet, right? These are symbolic ways of saying, you're now outside of the people of God. A refusal to hear is a decision not to belong. That's what Paul's saying. So it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish, Gentile, American, or Canadian. Refusing to hear is choosing not to belong. And so that's why the Word of God creates new community. Because hearing the Word of God separates us from our old community. As it does in this story. I know some of you know the pain of that. The word of God split this synagogue here in Acts 18 and eventually the whole city. That's what it does. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, not to mention synagogue and city. So here's the point. The more you hear of it, the more you are going to look like an alien or maybe even an enemy to your unsaved friends and neighbors. And therefore, the more you're going to need the friendship and support of the people sitting right here next to you in this place. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We know that the Word of God does not go out void, and so, Lord, we know that if the Spirit is in us and if the Word is washed over us, then we have heard from Jesus and have been changed. Thank you for that encounter. Lord, I pray that you would that you would do a special work in every heart, in every believing heart this morning. And Lord, if there are people here who, who prayed to you, Lord, open my ears so that I would hear. I pray that you'd speak to them in a particularly patient, clear way. And they would begin to hear that voice and follow it all the way to the gate of salvation. Lord, for us as a church, as we sit under this truth that the Word of God separates us from our old community, I pray that we would make of this place a new community, that it would be multi-generational, that it would be welcoming to all those who are in Christ, that it would have an open door to those who are finding their way and struggling their way, and that you would protect us from all those forces that would undermine and corrode our community and rob it of its vitality and power. So help us to be courageous and watchful, uh, even as we are mindful of the difficulty it must be for outsiders to find their way in. So we ask for your help. We ask that for those, uh, even today as we celebrate a new person being baptized, that we would today understand our responsibility to wrap around that individual so that their living stone could be added to our spiritual house. Help us do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.